Howdy, this is Jim Mars, author of Psy Spies, the true story of America's psychic warfare program. And today I'm on the 40-yard line getting ready to kick off the third great season of Banal of America Audio. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 3. Yes, folks, we are back after our lengthy hiatus. It was quite a summer here at BOA HQ. I'll have a lot more to say about the summer and what's to come here on BOA Audio Season 3 at the end of the program. But I know why you're tuning in. I know why you've downloaded the episode. I know why you're listening via streaming audio and that is because you want to hear our season premiere guest. For the third year in a row, we're going to kick off the season of Banal of America Audio with the legendary esoteric researcher Jim Mars. This past summer, Jim re-released Psy Spies, his classic book from the year 2000. He re-released it this summer as an expanded and updated edition, and so we had tons to talk about when he came back here on the program to kick off Season 3. We're going to be discussing the U.S. Army's remote viewing program, its birth, its evolution, and its demise. We're going to delve into the weirder elements like international sci-spy confrontations, the Enigma Files, the curious case of Phobos II, and how the UFO phenomenon fits into the sci-spy story. We'll also cover the controversy within the RV community once the sci-spy unit disbanded, and how the field has changed since moving into the private sector. Plus, we're going to get Jim's thoughts on the past year in ufology and the 9-11 truth movement, and, of course, as you've come to expect, tons and tons more. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jim Mars, let me give you a little bit of background on him. After graduating with a degree in journalism from the University of North Texas, he served in the U.S. Army, after which he became a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Jim worked for and owned several Texas newspapers before becoming an independent journalist-slash-author. His in-depth investigative book, Alien Agenda, has been cited as the best-selling non-fiction book on UFOs in the world, having been translated into several languages. He's also the author of the New York Times bestsellers Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, a basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK, and Rule by Secrecy, the hidden history that connects the Trilateral Commission, the Freemasons, and the Great Pyramids. He's also the author of The Terror Conspiracy, and the book we're going to be discussing this week here on the program, the re-release, updated, and expanded edition of Psy Spies. His website is www.jimmars.com. Check it out. If you want more from Jim Mars, dig into the BOA Audio Archive. This is the third season, of course, of the program, and we have kicked off each season with the legendary Jim Mars. So jump into the archive. You can hear over two hours of material from Jim Mars already via the BOA Audio franchise. Definitely check those out if you haven't heard them before. They are some tremendous interviews. But 
chances are you probably already heard them by now and you want to hear the new stuff. You want to hear the fresh stuff and you want to get rocking and rolling on BOA Audio Season 3. So let's not waste any more time gibbering and jabbering and let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 18th, 2007. Jim Mars talking about Psy Spies on the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season premiere of Been All of America Audio Season 3. Just like in the last two years, there's only one guy I want to have on to kick off the season. He is the award-winning investigative journalist, author of Crossfire, Rule by Secrecy, Alien Agenda, The Terror Conspiracy, War on Freedom, and the new re-release of Psy Spies, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Just simply a legend in the world of esoterica. Jim Mars, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here to kick off Season 3 of Been All of America Audio. Well, thank you, Tim, and congratulations on uh, leaping into Season 3. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, people who haven't uh, heard of you before should just check out the archive, because we've already done two interviews before. We're just going to dive right into the new material, and that is, of course, the re-release of Psy Spies. For starters, what made you want to revisit Psy Spies and put together this updated and expanded edition? Well, uh, I first put this book together back in the 90s when the Army's remote viewing unit was still a top-secret classified uh, program. And so you can understand the difficulties I had in trying to get somebody to talk about a classified program. But uh, I did complete a book. It went to a major New York publisher. Uh, it had passed the legal vetting. It, they had had they had pre-sales ready for it. They, everybody was very excited about it, and all of a sudden, very strange things began to happen. The editor was suddenly was no longer there. They took the thing away from the publisher's legal department, turned them over to some private legal firm. I was ordered not to contact them or even talk to them. And somewhere, somebody decided that they were going to cancel that book. So it just uh, it was suppressed. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, if you, uh, sometime later, uh, I did manage to put out a limited edition of Science Spies, uh, almost a self-published type thing, and I didn't really get the uh, widespread distribution and attention that I thought it merited, uh, and so now I'm very pleased that New Page Books has now reissued an expanded and updated version of uh, Science Spies, complete with photographs, and uh, this tells the story of the America's Psychic Warfare Program. Now, the reason I think this is so important is because, Tim, when I first learned about this uh, technology, this ability known as remote viewing, I thought, well, this is, you know, what a heck of a story, I said, because um, this is either real or it's not. And if it's not real, then I've got a really good story about a waste of taxpayer money. <laughs> if it is real, holy cow, this could be an evol evolutionary leap for humankind. And, of course, it is very real. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons they had to suppress my book, because they wanted to make sure that they put their, and I'm saying they, the government puts their own spin on it, because they tried to dismiss, discredit, downplay, uh, remote viewing because they don't want people <laughs> to understand that they can find out the truth for themselves. And of course, here we are talking about remote viewing, and I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners are out there going scratching their heads 
I'm thinking, well, now, wait a minute. What's remote viewing? <laughs> or they may have heard about it, but they don't really understand what it is. Remote viewing is simply a term that they coined for what used to be known as psychic clairvoyance. Okay? Something we've all been taught doesn't exist. Just mumbo-jumbo and superstition. But uh, they found out it does exist, and they came up with uh, techniques, protocols, if you will, uh, that allows people to use this ability and call it up on demand, analyze it, uh, interrogate it, and glean good information by psychic ability. Uh, again, it sounds weird and strange, but this was done, uh, studied intensely first by the CIA, then it was turned over to the United States Army that actually had a unit of soldiers, military intelligence officers, that were using remote viewing to spy on the Soviets, other potential enemies. And uh, this was carried on over four separate administrations, both Republican and Democrat, and uh, funded to the tune of some $25 million, which doesn't really sound like a lot of money, but then when you consider that I think at maximum they only had 24, 25 people in this whole unit, then uh, uh, that's pretty big bucks mm -hmm. spread over a good number of years. Um, so obviously somebody felt like they were getting some benefit out of this. Uh, remote viewing has been described as the ability to perceive persons, places, things at a great distance by means other than the normal five senses. So in other words, it's, it's psychic clairvoyance. And uh, Jim, one of the things that kind of surprised me is when I began to research uh, this psychic phenomenon was that it's been with us all along. Yeah. You can go back to the Bible and find accounts of uh, prophets or prophetesses who uh, were, well, for example, in the Old Testament, there's the story of Deborah who came to the leader of the Israelite army that was getting ready to go into battle against an army twice its size. And she said, I have had visions. And she gave the commander the disposition of the enemy troops. And using that, the Israelites were able to overcome this great army and win a great victory. And I think that places Deborah firmly in <laughs> as one of the world's first military remote viewers. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, I should definitely point out that a lot of people who know about uh, my work and, and my interest in the esoteric know that my whole uh, being in this field stemmed from reading uh, Rule by Secrecy, the book that you wrote that is just amazing and I highly recommend it to everybody. And at the time, after I had read Rule by Secrecy, then I went out and bought all the Jim Mars books uh, and managed to get my hands on a copy of the original Psy Spies, the new book. Uh, it is just tremendously fleshed out. There's a wealth of new details. I can't put it over enough. When I first heard it was a re-release, I was a little skeptical, but then when I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is – if it didn't have the same title, you wouldn't really know it was the same book. You did an awesome job updating and expanding it. One of the things that I want to talk about as far as the uh, the Psy Spies unit goes, because that's really like the book is about the journey of that unit. The government, when they sort of brought it in and started developing it, uh, their main interest was using it as a uh, as a weapon, for lack of a better term, or using it as a tool. And uh, they weren't concerned with figuring out how it works. And all along in the journey of remote viewing and psychic phenomenon, there's always been sort of that dichotomy of, like, proving that it works and then trying to figure out how it works. But the military wasn't interested in figuring out how it works. They were more interested in just using it. 
Um, and I'll talk about a little bit about that sort of attitudinal change, I guess, as far as remote viewing goes. Well, that that's been the problem with psychic uh, functioning all along in that scientifically and certainly statistically, they can prove that it's happening. The problem is nobody knows for certain how it works, and of course then that uh, breaks the scientific method, which is you start with a theory and then you test the theory, and if you duplicate it, replicate it, then it becomes more than a theory. It becomes a law or a statement of fact. Well, here it's, it goes backwards. It's fact that it works, but they don't really have the theory. They don't know exactly how it works, and that's one reason that science has been so hesitant to uh, get involved in remote viewing uh, because uh, it, it kind of causes them their head to hurt because they can't <laughs> figure out the theory. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my theory is. Okay, and it's based on everything I know. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to what Einstein called uh, his unified field theory, which is basically that the entire universe is at heart nothing but a big seething mass of energy, and we're all part of it. All the material, the planets, the suns, the gases, the the matter uh, is all just part of this huge energy field, and I think that when, well, I bet you've had the experience, Tim, of having an idea, say, for a book or a play or a TV show or a song or something, but but you never do anything with it. And then a year or two later, all of a sudden, you see a play or hear a song or see a book, and you go, hey, that was my idea. Yeah. You've had that experience? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I think most people have. Well, I, I think what happens there is when you have that thought, that thought goes out onto the energy grid, and it's uh, accessible by anyone who is sensitive enough or perceptive enough to pick up on it. And so, in other words, the whole universe is energy. Our thoughts are energy. And at some point, all that energy is one huge energy field. So in remote viewing, when you give a viewer a coordinate number, it doesn't really represent coordinates. They just call it that because... They started off using actual longitudinal and, and latitude coordinates, and uh, but now it's simply uh, they just call it it's a coordinate number. And say I want to have you remote view the Eiffel Tower. Well, if I tell you go remote view the Eiffel Tower, chances are you've seen, you've seen pictures of it, you've seen films of it, you may have even visited there. So you have no you immediately you got a mental picture of the Eiffel Tower, and that's not remote viewing. That's just a mental image, or maybe even just daydreaming. Um, So the trick was, how do I get you to go look at the Eiffel Tower without telling you to go look at the Eiffel Tower? And what they came up with is these uh, numbers. So I would give you a number, uh, and usually it's it's two sets of four four digits. So I'd give you uh, 41186. 025. Okay, that's now you got that number. What does that number mean? It doesn't really mean anything except in my mind, I attach that number to my task for you, which is to go look at the Eiffel Tower. It's out on the energy grid, and when you do your cool down and when you get in a receptive mood and allow the right hemisphere of your brain, which is very psychic, to go out and 
and, and well, I say go out, it's not a question of going out. It, it's all here, all around us all the time. You allow it to perceive what's on the energy grid, then it is directed by my thought to the Eiffel Tower, and then you would start describing uh, 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 the target. And the more detail you get about it, then pretty soon you figure out what it is. Uh, for example, you'd start off some basics. You'd say, okay, is my target uh, artificial or, or uh, natural? Well, it's artificial. Okay, is it man-made? Yes. Uh, is it big or little? It's big. Is it tall or short? It's tall. Is it very, very hard? Yes. Are there people around it? Yes, there's lots of people. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is it in North America? No. Is it in Europe? Yes. And you go like that until finally you're going to, you're going to finally say, oh, it's the Eiffel Tower. And that's how it works. One part of the book, Sci Spies, that was just captivating was the Sci Spies versus Sci Spies element <laughs> to it. The Russians versus the U.S. and sort of how they had some weird uh, interaction while in the in the remote viewing midst, if you will, uh, talk a little bit about uh, that that sort of weird situation that was going on between the two camps of sci spies in the different countries during the Cold War. Yeah, that that was pretty fascinating. Uh, before I talk about, and I have that in a chapter entitled "War in the Ether." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but before I talk about that, I think people need to understand that uh, our whole remote viewing experiment and program stemmed from the Cold War rivalry, okay? Yeah. About 1970, there was a popular book published called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. And in that book, they detailed all of the research that was going on in the East uh, European nations and in the Soviet Union uh, regarding psychic uh, uh, phenomena, okay? Now, that book was well-received generally by the public, but of course most people just went, oh, you know, this is goofy. And within the halls of the Pentagon and the halls of Langley, CIA headquarters, though, uh, these uh, officers there were going, nah, we don't believe in this stuff, but by God, if the commies are doing it, we got to do it too. (laughs) And so along with an arms race, we had a psychic race. And uh, as a result, we uh, got the remote viewers, and in Russia, they were known as extrasensors. China also had some psychics uh, and probably some other nations. So uh, what's amazing is is that these psychic warriors would cross paths uh, in the ether, in, in, in their mental travels, mm-hmm. and they were aware of each other. And uh, they would go to a location, and they would find their counterparts there. And what's interesting is is that early on, of course, it was it would be like coming around the corner and finding an enemy soldier. It's like, oh, my God, there's the enemy, you know. Yeah. But after a while, they, both sides realized that they were only there in their mental capacity and that they they weren't there in their physical body, so there could be no physical fighting and nobody could get hurt. And so after a while, it just kind of got routine and commonplace. And it reminds me of the Warner Brothers cartoon uh, with the sheepdog and the wolf, you know, and at mm-hmm. the beginning of the cartoon, they go in and they both walk up and punch the time clock and say, hello, Fred, hello, Bob. <laughs> you know, and so it's just kind of like, yeah. And of course, they were soldiers and they were doing the the same job, so it's kind of natural that after a while they just looked uh, upon each other not so much as enemies, but just uh, uh, competitors. Yeah. And But here's the clincher. I can't prove this, 
but I feel very, very strongly that it was uh, that remote viewing on our side and the extra sensors on the Soviet side uh, were a huge factor in ending the Cold War. And that's simply because the Cold War, from, from the get-go, was based on secrecy. Uh, the Russians didn't know what we had. They weren't sure of what our intentions were. We weren't certain about what all strength they had. We certainly weren't sure of what their intentions were. And it's that uncertainty, that fear that leads to hatred and leads to violence and led to the Cold War and the Iron Curtain. Well, once the remote viewers and the extrasensors were in play, there was no more secrecy. David Morehouse, for example, told me in great detail how that he would uh, lay on a cot there at uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, and cast his mind into the Kremlin and prowl the halls of the Kremlin, walk through walls, walk through doors, walk through lock vaults, go in, look at all the files, look at all the maps. They would actually go out and look at, at new tanks, new submarines, new aircraft, and the Soviet extrasensors were doing the same thing here. So all of a sudden, there was no secrecy. We knew what they had. They knew what we had. We knew what their intentions were. They knew what our intentions were. And the whole thing fell apart. So I'm trying to wrap my mind a little bit around uh, when they would see the other person, uh, the other remote viewer from the other country, how did they really distinguish a remote viewer also on location, I guess you could say, as opposed to, uh, you know, a person who was in the zone Some already? bystander, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very good question. And uh, it's kind of hard to explain. Uh, although, let me try. Uh, if you close your eyes and are told to picture a South Sea island, and you get a pretty good image of a sandy beach and waves, waves lapping on the shore and seagulls going overhead and a thatched hut or whatever, that's not remote viewing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a mental picture. That's daydreaming, okay? <laughs> remote viewing is, is uh, recognizing and working with a very, very subtle and soft psychic signal yeah. that you really kind of feel more than you see. Mm -hmm. So if in trying to explain to you how they do that, they, they would perceive that there was somebody else there. They would perceive that they were a counterpart, uh, uh, another remote viewer. It's not, it's not like on TV where you'd go there and you'd actually see everybody standing there. Uh, this gets back to the question uh, uh, that I'm often asked about privacy. You know, gee, does that mean that somebody can come and look at me taking a shower? Well, yes, they can, but it's not going to be what you think. In other words, if it's uh, a uh, bad example, but say, Tim, you had a, uh, a beautiful blonde neighbor and you had to <laughs> remote view her in the shower, okay? Yeah, you get the you get the perception that uh, that she's your neighbor. You get the perception that there's water, so she's in the shower. You can you can get all that, but you are not going to get that <laughs> Playboy fold-out picture that you're looking for. Yeah. Okay, so it's just it just doesn't work that way. It's more of a perception than it is actual uh, visual input. Although visual input uh, plays a role in it, and depending on how good a remote viewer you are and how uh, hard and fast on target you are, you can get visual images. But you have to be careful because of what they call analytic overload, which means basically that 
your conscious mind starts trying to interfere and override this subtle psychic signal and starts trying to analyze what it is you're getting, and generally that'll lead to mistakes. Uh, for example, if you're remote viewing and something and you you interrogate yourself you know, quietly in, inwardly, you say, well, it's tall, it's man-made, it has to do with the government, it's uh, very hard. Your analytic overlay comes in and says, ah, it's a missile. But in reality, your target was the George Washington Monument. See, see the problem? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's sort of delve into what the factors were in, in the collapse, I guess you could say, of the official Psy Spies unit. Because it okay. sounds like from the book, um, it started out sort of as a CIA type of thing, and then it became a hot potato, and they sort of dropped it, and the military picked it up. And then it sort of transitioned into more of a civilian type of thing, and Congress was kind of involved. And it sounded like as the word got out a little more in the halls of Washington, more people kind of wanted to, to stick their finger in the pie, if you will, and and, and uh, the people who were running it were more beholden to making sure that, uh, you know, Congress and all these other bigwigs and stuff were – were satisfied with the size buys than they were with actually getting results. Uh, that's sort of a thumbnail look at, at the... <laughs> and, and, and that's a pretty good thumbnail. That's, that's about what happened. Uh, the thing that uh, really uh, uh, kind of frustrated the size buys all along was that the higher up the chain of command went, the, the uh, less attention or belief anybody gave them. You know, uh, They would give them uh, good, hard information, but it very seldom was ever acted upon. Uh, in fact, most of the time, the remote viewing, if it did go to other agencies or other groups or other military uh, organizations, it was just looked on as supplemental information. It was never looked on as uh, a key uh, intelligence tool, and that's simply because of the mindsets of everybody. I, I, you know, I, I grew up uh, in the time of Sputnik and the Apollo missions and everything else, and, and every, all education was geared towards science and technology, and uh, and, and you never were taught <laughs> that psychic ability was was real. In fact, quite the opposite. You were taught it was not real. And of course, uh, all these generals and all these officials, uh, none of them really believed it worked until they themselves found out that it did. Uh, but then they were equally uh, hesitant to go before their peers and say, yeah, this is really works and we have to do this. So it was almost a constant struggle to get funding for the SASPI unit. But the way they did it was pretty interesting. Uh, instead of going with charts and graphs or PowerPoint presentations or whatever, they would simply get the generals involved or the congressmen and bring them in and have them do a session. And they then saw for themselves that this could work and uh, that it could be accurate. And as a result, they continued to get their funding. Now, the CIA, uh, which started uh, studying uh, this remote viewing in the early 70s, by the time, 75, 76, the time of the church committee, uh, that that's when we first found out about assassination of plots by the CIA and efforts to overthrow other governments and all like that. So they were coming under a lot of heat. And they decided they better get rid of anything that would cause them a problem. And, of course, at that time, if anybody found out they'd been pouring taxpayer money into psychic research, uh, there would have been a huge hue and cry. So so they uh, turned it all over to the U.S. Army. And as you so well said, the Army is always goal-oriented, mission-orientated, okay? It's uh, whatever it takes to get the job done. 
they don't care how it works. They just want to know, does it work? And, of course, they were they were getting some uh, valuable information. It was working. And so they kind of set the question of how does this work aside. But by the uh, mid-'90s, with a lot of the original SASPIs retiring from the Army and leaving the military, uh, a lot of them were writing books. A lot of them were going on the lecture tour. They knew they could not keep the story of remote viewing from the public anymore, so uh, they commissioned a uh, study and by by two scientists, Jessica Oots, who was a statistician, and Ray Hyman, who was a, uh, a diehard debunker. He never believed in it. He fought against it through the whole life of the sci-fi unit, and then they put him in charge of writing this report. So the outcome was pretty predictable, except Interestingly enough, uh, Jessica Hughes uh, said statistically there's something going on here, and it's significant. But Hyman says, yeah, but since we don't know how it works, it must not be working. <laughs> and, and based on that flaky report, the CIA issued a press release and says, yeah, we've been doing this uh, psychic uh, research, but we don't think we're getting much out of it. And, uh, we're going to discontinue this. Just thought you'd like to know. Well, you know, when's the last time the CIA voluntarily broke open one of their classified programs? They just don't do that. Yeah. So this was in response to all the people getting out, in response to the fact that they had managed to stop my book, but they knew that the others would be coming out. And uh, they wanted to control the release of the information about remote viewing, and I think the primary reason was not so much because of the psychic ability of remote viewing as it was uh, because of the subject of UFOs. Mm. Every single one of the military-trained remote viewers had direct experience with the UFOs. And uh, even today, some of them will talk freely about that, some of them will talk guardedly, and some of them won't talk about it much, but they all had this first-hand knowledge, and uh, I think that's what worried uh, the people high in the government who have been maintaining such a cover-up on the question of UFOs, uh, you know, going back into the 40s. What I was told, and I believe this to be true, is that at no time were the military spies ordered to go look at UFOs, Okay. Mm-hmm. And they tell me, they all tell me this, and I and I'm assuming it's true. And actually, it makes sense because how could the government take their highly trained, highly paid military intelligence remote viewing officers and and order them to go look at something that they've said for years doesn't exist? Yeah. <laughs> you can't very well do that. But what happened was is that these remote viewers would encounter UFOs as they went to other targets. For example, let's say they were tasked to go look at high-performance, high-flying aircraft in the upper atmosphere, the idea being to see what some other country might be testing. Well, they go up there and look around. They find these things splitting through the atmosphere. They go take a look at it. And as one of the sci-spies told me, he said, well, they, <laughs> those weren't us, and they weren't the Russians. Those guys were not even from the neighborhood. <laughs> So they uh, they all encountered these UFOs in, in their other psychic searches. 
And then one interesting sort of a little side part that I noticed in the book, Ingo Swan says that in 86, he trained two groups of remote viewers. One became the Psy Spies, and the other group, he doesn't know what happened to them, and they became a mystery. And then, of course, about 10 years later or so, the government shuts down the Psy Spies. But it stands to reason that since he trained this second group of people, that there must be remote viewers sort of in the system somewhere. Do you think that the government shutting down the official Psy Spies unit may have just been a case of uh, they've sort of drained the technology. They know how to do it. They, they have their own people who can train at this point. So it's best to uh, take all the people that are in the black and keep them in the black and cut ties to what's known already. I think you hit the nail on the head, and you're very perceptive to notice that there apparently were two groups going through the uh, training and the experimentation at Stanford Research Institute. Uh, it is my understanding that today there are still remote viewers within the government, but uh, if the government, if you ask the a government spokesman, they're going to say, no, we do not have any unit of uh, remote viewers. I think technically that's true. Uh, they don't have a unit, but they have individual remote viewers who were either directly trained in the military or trained by former military-trained remote viewers, and they are embedded in various agencies and organizations, and it only makes sense because what military commander would not like to have someone at hand who could at least possibly give him some idea of what's over the next hill? Uh, they, they just would have to have something like that, and I understand that there are a remote viewer or two within uh, the Delta Force, uh, the uh, Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers. And, uh, and then probably within other, other agencies. I think personally, I think the reason that they do not want another remote viewing unit is again, the same reason they don't want the public to be doing their own remote viewing because, uh, as a unit, if they, they would be able to penetrate government secrets uh, to include their lies, their deceits, and everything else, yeah, yeah. Cause, and it could cause them a problem. So by scattering them out, you know, you got you know one remote viewer here and one over there and one over there. Individually, they might stumble across a secret that they might think, well, that was just me. Uh, I didn't do the session right, or I misunderstood that, or maybe they have a reason for that, and nothing would be done about it. Mm -hmm. Then they wouldn't have a situation like the Enigma files, which you talk about in the exactly. book. Exactly. See, I think that's what was causing them a big problem, was that once these remote viewers encountered UFOs, in their mental travels, uh, they compared notes. Yeah. And they started what they called their Enigma Files. One part of the Enigma Files was the Phobos story. And I'll tell the Phobos story so I won't, you won't have to do all the work here. The Phobos was a Russian probe that was sent to Mars, and it got disabled. Uh, and they weren't really sure how. The remote viewers looked at the Phobos situation, and they saw what looked like two... I guess you could say intelligent sort of craft that checked it out and shot it with something, and that disabled the Phobos satellite. Long story short, uh, after they looked at that, they released sort of a, a paper, if you will, on what they saw that disabled the Phobos. Then, about two months later, the Russians, some of the Russian scientists who were part of their space program came to America. They were talking about the Phobos and actually showed a picture of what looked like what was one of the objects, how it was described by the remote viewers that disabled the Phobos. I guess the question I had, and this is more of like a, but do you think this is possible? I was wondering if you thought the Russians, when they came here and, and put up the picture, if that was sort of their way 
of providing the feedback to the remote viewers since they had released their findings and then all of a sudden the Russians released the picture. Is that sort of their way of tacitly endorsing what the story was that the remote viewers saw? What do you think of that? Well, that's an interesting question. I really hadn't thought about that. I, I'm under the impression that uh, uh, the cosmonaut uh, who came over here and uh, she she held a news conference uh, in San Francisco, I believe it was. Yeah. And uh, Maria Popovich, I think was her name. And I think that, to the best of my knowledge, she was simply answering questions about what happened to the Phobos too. And she held up a, one of the last photographs that was beamed back to the Earth from the Phobos too, and it showed this kind of irregular but nevertheless circular object approaching the Phobos 2, and interestingly enough, it's uh, very, very similar to the object that the remote viewers drew. Uh, that's why I included the Phobos 2 uh, story mm-hmm. in my book, Sci-Spies, because uh, whether it was intentional or not, it was definitely positive feedback yeah. that uh, showed that they had actually seen this, and of course it was such an unbelievable story. The fact that the circular object rises off the Martian surface, flies out to the Phobos 2, scans it with some kind of electromagnetic energy beam. Uh, by the way, the remote viewer said they did not detect any hostility. This was not an attack. In fact, one of them described it more like the tugboats coming out to bring in the Queen Mary. They came out, they scanned it, prepared to do whatever they do, and then they realized this was not theirs, so they turned around and went back. But when they scanned the Phobos 2 with uh, this electromagnetic beam, it fritzed the onboard computer, and they lost control of it, and it ended up tumbling into the Martian atmosphere and, and disintegrating, I guess. Now, the the reason I, uh, I got onto this story was that in the summer of 1995, we sent our own Mars probe, the Mars Observer, uh, to Mars, and just as it was going into orbit around Mars, just like the Phobos 2, uh, we lost it. And I was, I remember distinctly, I was quickly on the telephone to some of these remote viewers that I'd been dealing with, and I said, do y'all have any idea what happened to the Mars Observer? And they all said, yeah, same thing that happened to the Phobos, too. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, why I included that story. It's it's very fascinating. And if any of this is true, there's a lot more going on out there than we, we're being told about. Oh, for sure, for sure. And like I said, it was more of a speculative question. We'll never know exactly why the Russians came over to America and released the picture, but it just sort of didn't sit right with me. It made me kind of suspicious that maybe uh, – there was more to what they were up to when they came here to give the picture. Yeah, it was their, maybe their way of validating the remote viewing experience. Exactly, without, yeah, without, you know, outright saying what happened. The original version of Sci Spice came out in 2000, and then this book, obviously, 2007. In the years between the two books, remote viewing has kind of gone, undergone at least a public perception change. At first it started out, it was pretty novel and everything, but now the bloom is kind of off the rose. And we talked in the very first interview I did with you, we talked a lot about how uh, remote viewing has been adopted by all the hucksters, 
and the snake oil salesman, and all of a sudden right. now they're they're more viewers somehow. Um, right. But aside from that unfortunate turn of events, which was obviously which was easily predictable, if you know anything about uh, the paranormal field. Yeah, I told I told those guys back when it was still a classified program, and when I was talking with some of the classifieds that were still operating in the in the unit of the army, I said, well, you know, I can perfectly well see what's going to happen. I said, today you have Madam Hand, uh, astrologer, and I said. Uh, you know, as soon as this story breaks, you're going to have Madam Hand remote viewer. Exactly. Um, aside from that turn of events, what have you seen as far as the development of remote viewing on a more serious level since the original book came out? Obviously, you've had a, a lo much longer period of time here to talk to the guys who were a part of the original Size Pies, and right. they're doing their own work and stuff, and new generation of remote viewers are coming along. What's the advancement of remote viewing in the last uh, seven years since the book came out? Well, basically, what we see is that it's making inroads into the civilian sectors. Um, for one thing, I know that police departments are now routinely using psychics to try to solve hard-to-break cases. They don't make a big publicity push of this, but they are. And, in fact, in almost all the large uh, big city police departments, they have some remote viewers on tap that they can go to uh, for information, but they very but very seldom do they make this public. Um, the military, of course, has embedded remote viewers. Private corporations are making use of uh, remote viewing, trying to see what uh, what new products might be coming online in the future. What uh, automobile manufacturers, for example, uh, you know have. Would, would hire a remote viewer to go and look and see what the cars are going to look like three or four years down the line so they'll know uh, into what area they need to be focusing. And uh, you, got, you got a lot of that. One interesting story is uh, uh, came from Linda Cannon, who is uh, the training officer of the Saspies. He now lives in uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, and teaches remote viewing classes, but he also does contract work, and he was contacted by a private firm uh, and we know now that there are several private companies that are seriously talking about trying to uh, develop space travel and, and maybe uh, bases on other planets. And so this particular company wanted to know what was the most cost-effective means of uh, establishing a base on the moon. And uh, Lynn Buchanan had his remote viewers take a look at it, and they concluded that uh, you could have a base on the moon uh, for assuming that you could get once you're there for essentially the cost of some plastic sheeting and duct tape. <laughs> because and they figured out that if you take one of those craters on the moon, maybe one of the small ones, and you cover it with uh, plastic and then you put oxygen in there, then there you've got you've got a base you can yeah. live in this and uh, if a meteorite or something should puncture the plastic then all you have to do is not going to all rip apart it'll just poke a hole and then you go up there with some duct tape and plug the hole and then you're back in business there you go yeah that would be a pretty easy way to get get up and running uh, on the moon right um now uh one character in the book uh, who's not really in the book too much, but he's, I guess you could say he's a character in the remote viewing world. And I don't want to get into a situation where you're telling tales out of school, but, but at the same time, uh, at the beginning in the introduction of the book, it sounds like he sort of was a stumbling block to getting the book going. And nowadays, he, uh, he waves the banner of remote viewing 
despite what sounds like he's not really exactly uh, well-liked by the, by the true Psy Spies, and that's uh, Ed Dames. Um, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about Ed Dames. What's, what's the true situation with his role in the Psy Spies? Because every time I hear an interview with, you know, the Psy Spies who are uh, a little more well-known, I don't want to say who because I don't want to attribute them to saying anything that they haven't, but it sounds like the attitude of a lot of the other Psy Spies is that he's kind of full of malarkey, but he does have the, the background with the Psy Spies. So I'm not sure what, what's going on with that. So what's the story with Ed Dames? Well, first off, you're hitting on a sensitive area there because, uh, and I think it's a concerted effort. I think there's been a concerted effort uh, to use every psychological trick in the book to get these spies uh, fighting with each other, mm-hmm. okay, because then it tends to discredit the whole remote viewing experience and, and uh, so allows most of a whole swath of the public to just disregard the whole thing. You know, these people can't even get their act together. Uh, so I really don't want to contribute to that, but, uh, uh, I have been told by a, a number of these suspects that Ed Dames was, uh, a member of the unit, but he was strictly an analyst. He was not even considered a remote viewer. Uh, he was, uh, the ones who would assign, uh, uh, targets. He was the one who would file the reports, you know. And, uh, then he was the, one of the first to want to go public and uh, approach me and others about putting the story of uh, remote viewing out there. And of course, at the same time, he wanted to talk about Martians hibernating under the desert in New Mexico and various things like that. And, uh, I have been told that this was part of a planned disinformation program to put the story of remote viewing out to the public but in a very uh, uh, dismissive manner and in, in a not very credible manner, uh, which is what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it was pretty strange in that he's the one who first uh, got me involved and, uh, and got, uh, helped me put together a lot of the material. And then as the book was about to be published, he did a complete about face threatened legal action and uh, just completely uh, basically stopped the whole process. So uh, I would also point out that uh, he was the one who on the Coast to Coast radio show, which is still there frequently, uh, told everybody that when the Hale Bop comet came along that there was a body coming behind it filled with deadly pathogens and they were going to spread out all over the world and everybody in the world would be dead within six months. But, uh, and if you wanted to find out for yourself, send $59 or whatever, and you can get paid. And, uh, in fact, uh, in his own words on his own website, he says, uh, uh, he proudly proclaims that he is the founder of the remote viewing industry. So I think that gives an idea of what's happening there. But I really don't want to get into all the personalities because mm-hmm. that, that only adds fuel to the fire. When they, when most of these people were in the military, they had a, t- typical soldiers outlook towards their unit it was uh, you know band of brothers one for all all for one comrades to the end and then once they got out of the military and they all began to develop their own techniques for remote viewing they all uh, set up their own training courses and different uh, institutions for studying remote viewing and all of a sudden it seemed like they were all at each other's throats uh, and like I said I I think that that was not necessarily uh, 
an accident or or some kind of normal bickering. I think there was probably some efforts made to uh, sow dissension amongst their ranks so that they could discredit the whole experience. Exactly, exactly. Like I said, I didn't want to get you into a situation where you were telling tales out of school, but at the same time, it's uh, Ed Dames is sort of a, he's the uh, the 400-pound gorilla in the room. He kind of can't ignore as far as the remote viewing field goes. So right, and, and apparently he's still, he's still doing the job. He's out there, and he's the, he's the one that most people have heard about remote viewing from, and yet he's the one that uh, all the remote viewers that I've talked to, which is just virtually everybody that's in that unit, uh, they really don't have very complimentary things to say about it. Yeah, yeah. And if you were, if you wanted to dis- discredit the remote viewing scene, what better way than to have someone on uh, three hours a night, four four times a year, throwing out a outlandish and incorrect predictions? So uh, right. it's probably he's probably too, at the behest of someone else, perhaps. Um, I guess the last remote viewing question is a simple one. If somebody wanted to uh, get into remote viewing. What's the path that they should take? Because like we said, there's tons of people out there now that are, that are tacking on remote viewing to their resume that don't have the, the, the credibility or the skills to really be teaching remote viewing or even, you know, uh, selling remote viewing. So where, where does somebody go if they want to actually learn to be a remote viewer? Well, I think the first thing uh, that a person should do is uh, go out and grab all the literature that you can. My books, I suppose, which would kind of give you, I would hope, uh, and I think an objective overview of the military's experimentation in units. And then you get into more specialized books. Uh, uh, Dr. Hal Pudolf and Russell Targ that were instrumental in doing the psychic research at Stanford Research Institute uh, put out a book years ago called Nine Reach and where they detail their scientific uh, experimentation. Uh, most of the Sci-Spies, Joe McMonagall and uh, others, uh, Dave Morehouse, have written books uh, that gives their personal experiences with the unit and with remote viewing. So I'd say study up on remote viewing and then ask yourself, is this something I want to do? Is this something that I'm comfortable with? Do I really want to know the truth of what's going on? Do I really want to know what the universe is really all about? Uh, or am or am I perfectly content to stay in the the little matrix <laughs> world that's woven about me by the corporate mass media. And but if you interrogate yourself and say, yes, I really want to know the truth about things, then I would say go and find one of the original uh, Army remote viewers. Lynn Buchanan teaches. Uh, Paul Smith teaches. Uh, I believe Joe McMonagall teaches. I would contact them and have them direct me to where they think uh, uh, would be the best schooling. Uh, I would not necessarily just jump on the Internet and go for the first website that says learn remote viewing here. Yeah. Uh, I think I would contact uh, some of the more prominent remote viewers, like I said, Lynn Buchanan, Paul Smith, uh, Joe McMonagall, and... Uh, have them guide you to a proper schooling in remote viewing. But understand that if you do this, this is not something that you uh, get a book or send off for a DVD or maybe spend a few days with an instructor and then you just, you know, it'll just happen. Uh, Remote viewing requires uh, work, hard work, and a lot of patience and a lot of repetition, a lot of practice. Uh, Tim, it'd be like you and I, I could say that you and I both have the ability to play Chopin 
on the piano, which is true in a way in that both you and I, I'm sure if we practiced long enough and hard enough, took piano lessons, that ultimately we could play Chopin on the piano, but I don't know about right now, I don't know if you played piano, but right <laughs> no. now you probably could do it a lot better than I could, <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> That was uh, one of the things they found in the uh, experimentation was they found they never found one person who could not do this. We all have this ability. But again, that's like saying we all have the ability to, to play a uh, concert piece on the piano. Yeah. Yeah, if we work at it hard enough, we can, but most of us don't want to work that hard and <laughs> don't even want to put out the effort, so we don't. Yeah, that, that's the bulk of the remote viewing questions. That's all of them. So uh, let's just plug the book here before I dive into a couple of little minor points. Psy Spies, The True Story of America's Psychic Warfare Program. Check it out. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's at Borders. It's at all the big bookstores, and you can find it online. It had really prominent placement in the Barnes & Noble I went to when I got it. So, And it's a fascinating book, and I highly recommend it. So definitely check out Psy Spies. Thanks, Tim. And let me mention my website, jimmars.com. J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S dot com. There you go. Um, now, just to touch on a couple of little things. Uh, we talked we talked about almost a year ago to the day, practically, and I just wanted to ask you, uh, in the last year, has anything, as far as the UFO field, piqued your interest? There's been a lot of big stories in the last year, the Symington story, the, an- the various anniversaries of, uh, you know, Phoenix Lights, Roswell, Shag Harbor, all those anniversaries. And of course, the uh, the release of the French documents. So there's been a few, uh, and the O'Hare story. There's been a lot of big stories in the ufology world. Has anything really piqued your interest, particularly like the most? Has anything been the one it's that you think just, is the one to keep an eye on? It's just more of the same. You know, if you're paying attention and if you follow these stories, uh, there seems to me to be uh, an increase in these sightings and in the information that's coming out. It's it's almost as if the uh, embargo on UFO information is beginning to crack. Um, I think the O'Hare incident where this circular object was hanging over gate 17, uh, that was a pretty big story because that, uh, whatever that was, okay, mm-hmm. if it's hovering over a major airport, uh, that obviously could create a, uh, a hazard, a safety hazard. And the fact that everybody just dismissed it as weather phenomena, and trying to act like nothing had happened, uh, you know, is just incredible and shows uh, me the uh, level of control that someone has over our media. Uh, but the control cracked a little bit, and as you mentioned, Fife Symington, the governor of Arizona back in uh, 1997 when uh, the something flew over Phoenix, uh, and he's the one that held the news conference and had an aide come out dressed in a green alien outfit, and everybody laughed, and, and everybody laughed the whole thing off. Now he goes on CNN and tells us he actually saw the thing himself, and it was huge, and it was unearthly, and it was uh, it was a ship from another planet. It was it was not anything here. Uh, it, it, this is pretty incredible uh, because uh, it, again, it shows us that the embargo on truthful UFO information is kind of coming apart, and uh, I think as the years roll on, we're going to see more and more. Uh, actually, today, I don't understand how any thinking person 
who will take the time and trouble to actually look back over all of the reports, scientific studies, data, witnesses, recordings, films, photographs, everything that's, that's come out over the last 50 years. I, I don't understand how they can possibly still deny that there's not something unearthly going on. And then the other big uh, field that you're you're a big part of also is the 9-11 movement. Uh, obviously, a lot's been going on in the 9-11 movement in the last year. What uh, Where do you see things going? What's piqued your interest in the last year as far as 9-11 goes? Well, what I see going is not very hopeful in that uh, I, I feel like uh, Leo DeRocher said, it's, it's deja vu all over again. Uh, it's like uh, it's like going through the years following the Kennedy assassination. There was never any true cover-up in, in the idea that there was no information. The cover-up was obfuscation. So much theory, so many theories, so much information, so much conflicting data that the average person just says, oh, I don't want to hear that anymore, and it just kind of lost interest in it. Of course, slowly over 43 years, uh, we've all come to understand that uh, Kennedy was not killed by a lone nut assassin, that there was a conspiracy involved, and the, and the true uh, parameters of that conspiracy have not yet been made public. But And I and then the people within the UFO, uh, I mean the JFK research community, uh, were egged into fighting with each other and arguing over various theories, which again presented a very disunited front to the public who kind of wrote them all off as buffs or conspiracy theorists or whatever. And I see the same psychological techniques being used uh, in the 9-11 truth movement. Uh, you've got people that are just arguing and calling each other's names and almost getting into fistfights over their own particular pet theories rather than concentrating on what is generally acknowledged and what the facts totally support, which is who ordered the war game exercises on the morning of 9-11 that confounded our normal defense and response time. Um, back in 99, when the golfer Payne Stewart's plane suffered an oxygen malfunction, went off course, it was like 12 minutes they had fighter interceptors all around that plane, and they trailed it until it ran out of gas and crashed in an unpopulated area. Um, on 9-11, uh, an hour and a half went by without any interceptors in the air. How could this happen? You know, it, it's uh, how could the transponders on those four aircraft hijacked be turned off at the same time? How is that possible? The planes that flew into the World Trade Center were flying at excess uh, 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 faster than their uh, design speed limit. How is that possible? Why at the Pentagon? Why was there only a hole about 15 to 20 feet wide and about 10 foot high in the wall of the Pentagon before the wall collapsed uh, that supposedly is where a 767 that has a wingspan of about 125 feet and a tail height of 44 feet, which is four stories, and there's, and yet there was uh, intact, intact uh, windows, still blasting windows above the hull. Uh, how does that work? And where are the pieces of that aircraft? Where are those giant multi-ton jet engines? Where are those landing gears? Where are those indestructible pieces of that plane? We don't see it. We see a few scraps that they could be carried by hand. Uh, and we, so we still don't know what's going on. Uh, why did, uh, you know, the day after Pearl Harbor, Congress convened an investigation to find out what had happened. 
Less than a week after Kennedy assassination, Johnson named his Warren Commission, which although it was a whitewash, at least they put it into uh, operation pretty quick. And it was almost two years after 9-11 before families of the 9-11 victims finally pressed George Bush into uh, appointing a committee to look into it. And who was his first choice to head it? Henry Kissinger, yeah. the guy that's been responsible for our foreign policy for about 30 years and uh, who is up to his neck in, in all kinds of uh, uh, allegations and problems. And, and then he finally got uh, Lee Hamilton and Kern in there, and they did probably one of the worst investigating jobs possible. For example, another key question is what brought down Building 7, the Solomon Brothers building, uh, and that, that collapsed, totally collapsed, a 47-story steel and glass modern office building, totally collapsed into its own footprint at free fall speed uh, on the afternoon of 9-11, about 5.20 p.m., and it was not hit by airplanes, and it did not have devastating fires in it. Um, besides that, there's never been a building that's collapsed due to fire. Yeah. In early 2005, the Windsor Hotel in Spain, uh, Madrid, caught fire, burned out of control for two days, totally gutted the building. But it never fell down. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is so much that we still need to know about 9/11, and why is it important? Because 9/11 is the sine qua non of everything that's happened since: Homeland Security, the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, stripping us of our constitutional rights, invading Afghanistan, invading Iraq. All of this uh, is based on 9/11. Exactly. 9-11 was a fraud, and the evidence suggests it was, uh, that it was an inside job, a false flag operation. If that's the case, then everything that's uh, passed, uh, past that event is also a fraud. Exactly. And, of course, the book that you wrote on 9-11, The Terror Conspiracy, is still available, and that is, just covers a ton of information that you just, just touched on just now. Uh, oh, we get yeah, a ton of yeah. stuff There's in, so in that book. More. Um, and, and we're finding out, you know, more things all along. And what, and what I'm impressed with, Tim, is that now it's no longer, you know, I was one of the original members of the Scholars for 9-11 Truth because I do teach, or I did teach at the university. Um, but now... There are websites like Pilots for 9-11 Truth, uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. There's now a growing number of people who are very, very expert in building in structures and, and in building and in architecture design and in uh, flight training, flight capabilities, aircraft, who are now beginning to take a second look and they realize that the official conspiracy theory of 9-11, namely that these 19 Muslim hijackers armed with little box cutter knives uh, could take over four jetliners, fly them unerringly into the into these buildings, and uh, all of all under the control of a Muslim cleric using a computer in a cave in Afghanistan, uh, just won't hold up to scrutiny. And now, when we wrapped up the interview last year, you uh, you said you were at work on a new book. You were sort of teasing a little bit. I just wanted to know if there's anything else you can tell us in the in the last year uh, on, on what's going on with the new book, when we can expect to see it, and any information, anything you can tell us about the new book. I'm a, I'm a super fan here, Jim. I need to know. <laughs> well, yes, I have a new book in HarperCollins right now. Uh, I won't tell you what it's about, but my title is The Rise of the Fourth Reich. 
Nice. That'll give you some hint. And by the way, John Dean of Watergate fame has just come out with a new book of, and pointing out all of the uh, dirty deeds, corruption, and criminality that's taken place within the Republican Party. And uh, when you read my book, you'll find out who, who's behind that and how they did it. Awesome. And when do you expect the rise of the Fourth Reich to be uh, to be out and available? I'm told it should be out uh, uh, late spring next year. Awesome. Maybe, Perfect. Maybe June. Awesome. Almost in time for uh, the beginning of season four, I think. Great. <laughs> um, and uh, and just to sort of wrap it up, what's next for you? What do you have coming up on the horizon? You know, November, December, or in 2008, anything? Any big conferences you want to plug or anything? Uh, like that? No, not really. Uh, I usually try to stay clear during the holidays because they get all jammed up. So just keep an eye on JimMars.com to find out uh, any upcoming speaking right. engagements. There you yes, go. Yes, that's right. All right. Well, uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming back on the show, for helping me kick off Season 3. We've done probably close to 60 episodes now, and uh, I wouldn't even be doing a radio show if it wasn't for stumbling upon Rule by Secrecy and that opening my mind to, to the esoteric. So you got to read the Jim Morris books. If you haven't read Rule by Secrecy, there's something wrong with you because you don't know what's going on yet. you got to read Rule by Secrecy and, of course, all the other great books, Alien Agenda, The Terror Conspiracy, Crossfire, and, of course, the new book, the re-release, updated and expanded, Psy Spies, the true story of America's psychic warfare program, available all over the place. Pick it up. It is awesome. Jim, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Tim. That does it for the season premiere edition of VOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to the legendary Jim Mars for coming on the program and helping us kick off yet another season of Been All of America Audio. You can find out more from Jim Mars at www.jimmars.com, J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S.com. Check it out. Moving right along, as I teased at the beginning of the program, here is some more information on BOA Audio Season 3, what's coming down the pike here in the weeks and months to come on the program. I am tremendously excited about so many of the guests that we've already interviewed and many of the guests that we have already lined up for future interviews. As you may have noticed, we didn't have the elaborate audio previews leading up to the season premiere this time around. The simple reason for that is we were engulfed in our own little Catch-22, which was that we have taped so many episodes that I just haven't had time to sit down and edit all of those episodes. From here on out, we've got the next eight weeks of programming for BOA Audio Season 3 locked in, taped. Some of them are already edited. Some of them still have to be edited. But we've got eight weeks worth of material covering all sorts of esoteric phenomenon. We're going to be delving into the Oak Island mystery. We're going to talk about the Foo Fighter phenomenon from World War II. We're going to talk about UFO cults and culture. We're going to discuss the family dynamic of ufologists. And we're going to have a really cool BOA audio special episode from the Mass Monster Mash featuring six of the presenters from the Triple M Conference. All that, plus a major A-list superstar guest that we've already taped. We taped the episode on Thursday. This is a guest that many, many people have been writing to us saying, you got to get this guy on the show. When are you going to have him on the show? He'll be on the show, my friends. The episode is taped. The name will be announced shortly. I expect that we'll probably get the episodes all edited together, hopefully by the beginning of next week. And at that point, we can put together some little previews of the upcoming season and what you can expect to hear 
from BOA Audio Season 3. The madness has just begun. This week's interview with Jim Mars was merely the tip of the iceberg that is BOA Audio Season 3. Before I get to talking about next week's episode, I want to give a huge thanks to the BanalofAmerica.com staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna. As many of you know, I was pretty hurting towards the end of Season 2. And I'll be honest with you folks, I was in bad shape throughout the summer. It was really hard for me to get my act together and really concentrate and focus on the BOA franchise. Thankfully, BOA has a tremendous staff of writers who carried the website on their back for the summer of 2007. Without folks like Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna, BOA really would have been a ghost town throughout the summer of 2007. I owe them a huge thanks, and I cannot praise them enough for their work ethic, their loyalty, and their consistency. So, huge thanks to the BanalofAmerica.com staff. Next, we have to take care of a little bit of business here, folks. At the end of last season, I teased that we may be taking the MP3s off the website. They may no longer be free. I'm happy to say that will not be the case. For the foreseeable future, the vast BOA audio archive of MP3s and streaming audio will remain free. There's not going to be any charge for that. You can download them as much as you want, grab the episodes, put them on your iPod, whatever, but you're not going to have to pay for a single minute of the All of America audio. But it comes with a caveat. A program like this costs a lot of money. This is a financial burden that is certainly weighing on the BOA franchise. There's a way you can help us out. You go to banalofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page and simply click the PayPal button to make a donation to Banal of America. All donations go towards paying for the website, the hosting, the phone calls, and all other extemporaneous expenses that seem to accumulate around a series like this. There's no commercials on Banal of America Audio. There's no time limit. There's no restrictions. And that is made possible by people like you who make donations to help us keep the whole operation up and running. So, please, go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. Next week on the program, we're going to be talking about the UFO world with Karen Dolan, one of 2007's breakout stars in the field of ufology. Karen Dolan, as many people know, is the wife of acclaimed UFO researcher Richard Dolan, at some point in the last year, she decided she was going to enter the UFO field, created her own podcast series, and has been generating critical acclaim throughout the online esoteric world. We're going to be talking to Karen Dolan about a whole host of topics. We're going to find out what made her decide to enter the UFO field, the dynamics of being the spouse of a UFO researcher, women in ufology, the pros and cons of UFO conferences, the fragmentation of UFO studies, the potential desensitization of children to the UFO phenomenon, and tons and tons more. It's a very enlightening and unique episode of Banal of America Audio. You're not going to get this kind of perspective from too many guests, but you're going to get it from Karen Dolan, and you're going to get it next week on Banal of America Audio Season 3. So tune in for that. We're going to have a preview up at BOA sometime next week, most likely Thursday or Friday. So stop on by BanalofAmerica.com for that. On that note, there's not much more to say, my friends. I'm tremendously excited about being back. I am just thrilled about the way Season 3 is shaping up. I want to thank all the great people who have stuck with Banal of America and BOA Audio for so long. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support of BOA.
Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.